You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit hbcyr.ca. Amen. Amen. Well, take your seats, and while you're doing that, get your Bibles out and turn to Exodus chapter 33 today. Um, Exodus 33, if you don't have a Bible, there's one uh, somewhere near you in a, a seat in front. Um, Exodus, if you don't know where it is, is the second book of the Bible, so it's an easy one for you to find um, in chapter 33. We're going to take a look at Moses this morning and uh, really the uh, reality of what God calls him to and then the conclusion that he comes to. There's only one way forward that's going to be successful. There's only one way that I can move forward, God, with what you're asking me to do. And uh, Lord, it's going to involve you. And uh, I wonder sometimes in our lives when we're asked to do something that's difficult, if we don't, first of all, put our minds on to, well, how am I ever going to work this out? Moses worked through that. We're going to see that in the message today. But I think sometimes we get to, well, you know, if I just try hard, if I just move these things around, and, and our first inclination is not to cry out to the Lord, uh, where Moses comes to that very quickly, and we'll see that in our text today. But maybe you've been asked to do something that's difficult and you come up with your reasons why you can't, other people should be doing it, all of the rest of it, and yet in your heart of hearts, you know that God's placed this in your heart to do it. And uh, maybe it's serving somewhere in the church. It's uh, being involved in Awana or Harvest Kids or our youth ministry or young adults or serving with the men's ministry or women's ministry or being a small group leader, and you've been asked to do this, and you're filled with... um, and you got all kinds of reasons and all kinds of thoughts. And uh, we're going to take a look at Moses today because he went through some very difficult things. When God asked him to do a huge thing, I want you to lead the nation. I want you to lead the nation. And, uh, and he comes to the place where he does it. But what was the journey for him uh, that brought him there? So we're going to focus in uh, Exodus 33 today. So let's stand together as we read God's word. We want to honor him as we read it. And I'm going to start in verse 12. Of Exodus 33. And Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and I've also found favor in your sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please, I love that word, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God says, and he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he, Moses, said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. And Moses said, please show me your glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to uh, come and worship together and learn from your word. And as we are instructed by your word, as we are instructed, instructed through the life of Moses, God, would you uh, teach us, Lord? There's some things that you call us to that are very much like the things you called him to. So, Lord, today, as we hear your word, give us ears that we would listen so carefully to what your word says. Give us minds, God, to be able to comprehend and understand. And even more, along with those things, God, give us hearts that we would live out for the fame of the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you. You can take your seats. And uh, as I said, we're going to focus on Moses today and the working of God in his life. And some of you in the room, like me, grew up in church. And uh, so when you think about Moses, there's all kinds of things that you think about him uh, because you've heard all the stories before. Um, Others of you didn't grow up in the church. And when I say Moses, like you're stuck on like the Ten Commandments movie from like 30 years ago, and that's all you really know about him. And so I want to take a little bit of time this morning in the uh, first part of the message. There's no room in your notes to write this stuff down, just to kind of give you a glimpse of who this man Moses was as we set the table for what we want to look at in only one way uh, forward. 
In Exodus 1, verses 6 and 7, it says, Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. What land? Well, Egypt was filled with them. Uh, back in the time, Joseph had gone down there through the miracle of God. He had been raised up as the uh, prime minister, as it were, of the nation. He saved Egypt in the famine that went on. And the people of Israel had made their way down there and now were living in, in Egypt. But after Moses, excuse me, after Joseph dies and the generation that was with him, it says that a, a new Pharaoh uh, was raised up and uh, a new king arrives who did not know Joseph and who had forgotten. And uh, he becomes jealous of the, the people of God who are in Egypt. They are becoming strong in his nation. And so he not only makes them into slaves, but he also goes, we got to get this dealt with. And he puts out a decree that all of the baby boys should be killed. And uh, Moses' mother protects him by putting him in a basket and putting him in the bulrushes. And as it works out, God working it out. Um, a Pharaoh's daughter goes down for a swim in the river and she finds Moses and takes him into her home as her own. But in God's timing in all of this, uh, Moses' mother becomes his nurse uh, to care for him. So he's trained and he understands all that's happened and how God has uh, protected him as he, as he grows. Um, he makes a stand at one point and Moses kills an Egyptian and then he flees to Midian. He spends 40 years or so there and and then God calls him. Um, the stories of Moses um, with God at the burning bush and take off your shoes, the ground you're standing on is, is holy ground. And uh, he meets the Lord there. And Moses asks God his name. And God says, I am who I am. Which basically God was claiming to be God. The Alpha and the Omega, the Greek would say. And I am who I am. And the Lord gives Moses a sign that the people would listen to him. But Moses was afraid. And so the Lord sends uh, Moses' brother Aaron to go with him because God is calling Moses to lead the nation. And he says, um, so Moses, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the Pharaoh. And I want you to tell him, you need to let my people go. You need to release them from this bondage. You need to just let them go. Can you imagine that calling? Like we wrestle with, I wrestle with leading this church. Not that God it can't help us and won't do a work, and he does, and it's amazing what God does, but think about what God's asking him to do. You go and stand before the Pharaoh, and you say to him, you need to let my people go. And he goes to him, and Paul's interpretation of this, but he's like, yeah, right, like that's going to happen. As a matter of fact, I'm going to make it worse for you. Your people are going to have to work harder as slaves. And um, Moses wrestles with all of this. And eventually God sends him back to Pharaoh. And uh, God gives a sign. And uh, remember the staff that uh, turned into a snake. And, and then um, and God says to uh, Moses, pick it up by the tail. Now, I hate snakes. You just need to know I hate them probably not supposed to hate things, but I hate snakes, okay? And God says, pick it up by the tail, okay? You don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that's not the way to pick up a snake. The tail end is not the end that's going to hurt you, right? But he does, and it's a sign of his faith and trusting the Lord, and he takes it by the tail, and it becomes back into the rod again, and God does that. And, and then God, through a, a miracle that he does, he, he turns the Nile red like blood and... Um, and Pharaoh still won't let the people go. And then in the story of Moses, as you go through the book of Exodus, then we come to the plagues that God sends. And God sends a number of plagues on the people. The first one was the frogs in Egypt. And there are frogs literally everywhere. And, and as, as Pharaoh sees this judgment, he, he begs. He begs for relief. And the, and the frogs are taken away. And then he hardens his heart. 
And then comes the gnats and then the flies and then the plague on the livestock. And then God sends boils and then hail. And then he sends a plague of locusts on them. And then he sent darkness for three days. And each time, each one of the plagues that God sends, a Pharaoh begs for relief. But then when, it's, when he's delivered them, and then he hardens his heart. And then God says, I'm going to uh, do one more thing. I'm going to send one more plague. And that is, I'm going, to destroy the, I'm going to destroy the firstborn of Egypt. And this is where we have the picture of the Passover. And they remember the story. If you went to Sunday school, you remember the story of, of putting the blood on the doorposts. And when the angel of death passes over, the doors that have the blood on the doorposts, the children will be safe. And the ones that don't, the children will die. And that's exactly what happens. And there's huge mourning that's going on all across Egypt. All of these firstborn are dead. And God's people get up and they leave. And they, they flee, as it were, from Egypt. And they, um, they come now to the uh, Red Sea. Um, they're caught now, though, because the Red Sea is in front of them. And the Egyptian army, realizing the people are leaving, is now coming after them. And this is where God does another miracle and God opens up the Red Sea and the people go through on dry land and as the Egyptian army comes in, the waters come in and swallow them up and, and the army is destroyed and God takes them into the land. Um, but even, excuse me, into the, across the Red Sea. Um, but even as they get across there, they um, are, are attacked by the Amalekites and there's a war that goes on with the Amalekites. And remember the story where Moses was, held up his arms and as long as he held his arms up, um, Joshua, who was leading the people, would have victory and, and God gave them a victory in the land. And they come to Mount Sinai. They come to Mount Sinai. And they get to Mount Sinai, and it's there that God starts to give them the, the rules and the laws and what needs to be in the tabernacle and what will make up the Ark of the Covenant and all that. You find all this as you read through uh, the book of Exodus. And Moses goes away for the people for 40 days. He goes up in the mountain, and he meets with God. And while he's there, uh, God gives him the Ten Commandments and the two tablets of stone. And he comes down off the mountain. And as he's coming down off the mountain, after only 40 days, he comes down and the people have lost sight of who God is. They've taken all of their gold. They've made it into a golden calf. And they're worshiping a false god. And Moses takes the two tablets and he smashes them on the ground. And God's judgment is on the people. And thousands of people are put to death. And that brings us to chapter 33. Because in chapter 3, God comes to Moses again and he goes, okay, it's time to move forward. It's time to move on and we're going to dive into that. Moses' life, he, it, it ends so well. At the end of the book of Deuteronomy, it says there never was or has been or will be a prophet like Moses. So we want to see some things about him today. We want to understand some things about him today. And I trust as we do that and seeing the one way, the only way forward, it can help us in our walk as we seek to serve the Lord. So the first thing we want to take a look at is this idea of the setting. That's a bunch of background information. But what's going on here now in this text? The people are about three months out of Egypt. And they're in Sinai. And they've been disobedient. And now God is calling Moses to lead the people once again. What a huge task. What a huge uh, responsibility. Um, and so let's take a look at the man. Let's take a look at the man. And let's understand that he's a little bit reluctant. As we've read the text, I think you can sense that. God says, I'm going to go with you. And he goes, Lord, unless you're going to go with us, we're not going to go. Because it's in your going with us that we are distinct. And so there's a little bit of reluctance that goes on in his life. Are you ever reluctant to do the thing that God calls you to do? You know, before we get too hard on Moses, who's being called to lead millions of people, what are you reluctant to do that God's put on your heart? Uh, what's the thing that in your heart, if you were to go, oh, this is what God wants me to do, and you're reluctant to do it? Lead a small group? Be involved in ministry. Speak to your neighbor about the Lord. Trust God in the circumstances that you find yourself in. 
And so when we see his reluctance, let's be careful because we know that in our own hearts, we're filled with that same kind of reluctance in ourselves. And so Moses is asked by God to lead the people. And he comes to the place of, here I am, Lord, I'll do what you want, but uh, there's some apprehension. I want you to see that that's been part of his life from way before. This is not new in Exodus chapter 33. Uh, back in Exodus 3 and 4, when God calls Moses at the burning bush, Moses gives five excuses. Five excuses is why he's not the guy. And uh, so I'm not going to spend much time on it. You can look it up on your own, but I want to tell you what they are. In Exodus 3.11, Moses says, I'm not good enough. Uh, there are better people for this job. Maybe you've been asked to serve somewhere in the church. And you're busy looking around at, well, no, he could do it better, or she could do it better, or they could do it better. And, and your thing is, I, I'm not good enough for this. That's how Moses felt. It's a legitimate feeling, but it's not true. See, your good enoughness, is that a word? Good enoughness? You're only good enough to do whatever God calls you because he leads you in it. We're going to see how he says, he says the only way we're going to be successful is it's in your going with us, God. I'm not good enough. That was his first excuse. His second excuse is in Exodus 3, verse 13. He goes, I don't have all the answers. Like, what if they come and ask me something and I don't know what to say? We've got people who come across the front of the service um, at the end of the service every week to pray with people. And, and one of the things that when we ask them if they would start to do that, they say is, what if I, I don't know what I'm going to say? I don't know what to tell people. What if they come and ask me something I don't know? Believe me, I see you coming up here and I'm like, oh boy, uh, what are they going to say? What am I going to tell them? Because uh, the answer is not my answer. That's not what matters. The answer is what God's, God's words say. And God promises he'll prepare us and God promises that he will help us. And people are standing across the front are not here to solve people's problems. We're here to pray for people and pray with people. But just as we would have that kind of a sense, Moses had that sense. Uh, God, I don't have all the answers you don't have to know all the answers because it's not about you. It's about focusing people back towards the Lord. Here's the third thing. He says, uh, what if the people won't believe me? What if the people won't believe me? Well, that's kind of natural. You might have a sense in your heart that your neighbor is a person that you need to go and talk to about the Lord. And uh, the fear in your heart is, but what if they don't believe me? What if, what if I, I, I bring my best thing? And they just dismiss it, or they won't believe me. It's not your job to change someone's heart. It's not your job to um, instill in them. God does that work. God is the one who works through the power of his spirit. And so, but Moses had that excuse. They won't believe me. He gets a little more desperate in Exodus 4 and verse 10, and he goes, uh, I'm not a good public speaker. I, I could never stand up and do that. And uh, God does give him a little bit of a help here. He gives him Aaron to help him to speak for him. But, um, but maybe with um, the things you're challenged to and your thought is, but, but I can't speak very well. I just, you know, my mind gets going. I don't get my thoughts together. And it's really an excuse. Because your focus isn't really on the Lord and what God wants to do through you. Let him do his work. I'm a terrible public speaker. The last one, when desperation really strikes, in Exodus 4.13, he basically tells God, I'm not qualified. Get someone else. I'm not qualified, God. Get someone else. Uh, here's a principle for you to think about. When God puts a thing on your heart for you to do, the excuse, I'm not qualified, get someone else, doesn't go away. Because God's calling you to do a thing. 
And the peace is going to come when you step up and do what God has called you to do. So as we think about this man, Moses, in the context of what God is calling him to today, he's a little bit timid as he dives into this responsibility. He's a little bit nervous. And we come to Exodus 33 after he's taken a kick at the can. And the people now have become self-centered. They focus their views, their eyes on, on a false God. And now God's like, okay, Moses, let's pick it up because it's time to do it again. God, can't you just find somebody else to do the job? I think sometimes when we pray about needs in the church or needs in the people's lives around us, we kind of pray with one eye open going, Lord, Lord, please supply, please supply. And maybe Jim over there, he could do it. Or Mary, she could do it. Or that couple could do it. And, and God's putting on your heart. No, this is for you to do. Get someone else is not God's plan. Uh, those were Moses' five excuses. Those were the things he said. And so as he's about to wrestle with all of this, that's how he is as a person. But the second thing we want to take a look at is the people that he's being called to lead. The people that he's being called to lead. You ever get a stiff neck? Maybe you sleep on it wrong. Your pillow's too big. You know, you haven't bought the miracle pillow from TV and therefore, you know, you wake up every morning and you're like this. And even as I go like that, some of you are going, yeah, my neck's feeling a little bit stiff right now myself. And, uh, okay, why are you saying that, Pastor Paul? Because that's what God calls these people. He calls them stiff-necked people. So just a little note, you don't want to be a stiff-necked person. When you have a stiff neck, you have limited movement. You're always just kind of focused in one direction. Everything's hard to do. And this is the way the people of God are described. Really, Pastor Paul? Yeah, on more than one occasion, in Exodus 32 and uh, verse 9, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Over in chapter 33, verses 3 to 5, uh, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. God's going, if I was to go with you right now, I would just destroy you because of the way you are. When the people heard this disastrous word, okay, there's the proof, you don't want to be called a stiff-necked person. A disastrous word. They mourned, and no one put on his ornaments, for the Lord had said to Moses, say to the people of Israel, you are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. And then over in 34 and verse 9, and he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us uh, for your inheritance. Second Chronicles 30 verse 8 tells us we shouldn't be a stiff-necked people. Proverbs 29 verse 1 says, He who is often reproved yet stiffens his neck will suddenly be broken beyond healing. God says, I'll destroy a stiff-necked people. It's beyond healing a stiff-necked people. And yet God is calling Moses to lead this group of people who are stiff-necked people. Now, I wanted to be careful as I preach this message not to pretend I'm Moses and you're the stiff-necked people. Because that might be true of some of you in the room. It's not true of everyone in the room. But I want you to understand if you're a small group leader in our church, you're going to have some people in your group who are stiff-necked people. God never calls us to do an easy thing. He calls us to do a thing that's going to require us to trust him. And so along with your own sense of timidity and what God's called you to, the people sometimes are going to be a problem. And this group of people that Moses is leading is described over and over and over again in Scripture, a stiff-necked people. So what are the marks of stiff-necked people? What do they look like? I have 10 of them I want to talk really quickly to you about today because it doesn't take rocket scientists to figure out what these things are and the implications of them. 
And you might go at the end of this, well, yeah, five of them are me, but five of them are not, so I'm okay. No. If any of these things describe you, you need to be very careful that they're not describing someone who is a stiff-necked person. Now, whenever you do a list like this, people sometimes think, well, where did he get that from? Did he just make that up on his own? Well, the reality is I found it somewhere on my computer. I would give credit to who it is, except I don't know. I haven't found it again. And they had eight things. And I've added two more to it. I'm not going to tell you which two are mine. Um, but they are ten. Ten things that describe a person who is a stiff-necked person. And now allow that to be a lens on your own life. And ask yourself whether these things described you. A stiff-necked person has certainty that they are right. Stiff-necked people are convinced they're right. I'm not talking about somebody who's preaching the truth and sharing the truth of God's word. God's truth is right. And I'm talking about the person who, when every time you talk to them, you walk away from at the end of it and you go, why do they always think they're right? You know some people like that, right? Some of you are married to somebody like that. And uh, I'm not. Some of you are. When I was a kid, um, we had a chair in our living room that was called the right chair. That's what we named it as kids. It was the chair my dad sat in. And he just had a way of communicating that he was right. And uh, I remember after he died, we would joke about being afraid to sit in the chair. Because if you sat in the chair, you had to be right in whatever you said. Um, my dad wasn't a stiff-necked person in the spiritual sense, but he had strong opinions about things. And you're certain that you are right you're always certain that you're right and the other person is wrong, you could be a stiff-necked person. Here's another thing, the second one, a refusal to listen to anyone else. I've got this all figured out and I'm not listening to what other people are saying. A refusal, a refusal to listen to others. Here's another one, stiff-necked people, defensive when criticized. When somebody comes and seeks to correct you, you're always so, so defensive. Never really ever changing. Always stuck where you are. You could be a stiff-necked person. Here's the fourth one. You make excuses for your own shortcomings. Oh, it's just the way I am. It's just the way I am. Now, coming out of that is a lack of change. You make excuses. That's number four. Here's number five. You lash out at others. Stiff-necked people because they're right. Other people around them therefore must be wrong. And when somebody else brings a contrary opinion or thought, you lash out at them. Do you find yourself lashing out at people? Especially about things if they bring them to you about the word of God or, or your walk with the Lord and, and you're on the, who do you think you are talking to me about that? You might be a stiff-necked person lashing out. Here's another one, ties with it. No desire to examine your own life. The thought of the verse, search me, O God, and know my heart, and try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me from the Psalms. Now, that's not your mantra. That's not what you're asking God to do. You don't want any search me, O God, because you're stiff-necked. You're stuck where you are. You might be a stiff-necked person. No desire to examine your own life. Here's another one. A repeated pattern of misbehavior. And you might say you're going to change, but six months later you prove again that you haven't changed. A stiff-necked person. Number eight, I want what I want, and I don't care what you say. When your priorities become more important than that, say, of your family, more importantly than that of the Word of God, uh, you are a stiff-necked person. Number nine, blindness to what others see is obvious. Other people come to you, and it's not just one source, but as other people go, why can't you see it? This way you're dealing with your finances, or the way you're dealing with your family, or, or the way you're dealing in your job, or, or your walk with the Lord, and, and they're coming to you, and you're just continually, you can't see it, you can't see it, you can't see it. Now, God has to make you see it, but the reality is stiff-necked people, blindness, uh, here's number 10. You have prayer without repentance. You have prayer without repentance. 
There's never any real change. You, you come to the Lord and, oh, I'm so sorry and I'm so sorry and I'm so sorry, but, but there's no true repentance. There's no real turning. Those, those would be 10 things that would describe a stiff-necked person. And what of those things or how many of those things would other people use as a way to describe you? The scriptures are clear. You do not want to be a stiff-necked person. God's judgment comes on stiff-necked people. And these are the people that God is calling Moses that he is to lead. Oh, God, help us. Oh, God, help me that this would never be the way I'm described. So we've got Moses and his timidity. You have the people and they're stiff-necked. And then you have the third piece of this is the circumstances they find themselves in. Yeah, they're out of Egypt. They're across the Red Sea. But they don't have the destination they're not in the promised land. They've been told where it's going, but they don't have where it's going. They're wandering around. They're living in tents. Uh, they cross the Red Sea. They run out of water. And, and God has Moses strike the rock, and the water's provided for them. And, and then they don't have food. And God provides for them the quail and the manna. Manna literally means, what is it? And for 40 years, they're going to eat quail, and what is it? But God provided it every day for them. I remember as a kid that my mom believed it was good to use up leftovers. I've come to that conclusion now in our lives too, but as a kid, so you knew what you had if we didn't finish it, it was coming back in another form on another day. <laughs> See, you've all been there. And you'd look down at your plate and you would say, what is it? Right? Um, well, God's provision for his people was, what is it? And he provided the food they needed every day for 40 years. But they're in difficult circumstances. They're no longer in Egypt. They're not to be like the Canaanites that are in front of them. What is it? Their circumstances are tough. And Moses is called to lead God's people in his own timidity, in their hard-heartedness, stiff-neckedness, and in the circumstances that they're called to. So that sets it all up for then what happens, and that's really the solution. And we just dive right back into the text to find it. The solution, first of all, is found in their identity as God's people. God's people are learning, as is Moses, where their identity is found. And their true identity is not found in themselves. Because the identity you find in yourself is no different than anybody else's identity. So look at verses 14 to 16. And God says to Moses, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses says to God, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known, here's your identity, that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? That distinctive that we have as followers of Jesus Christ is not found in ourselves. It's not found in our ability. All kinds of people have the kind of abilities that we have in this room. Our distinctiveness is not found in ourselves. It's not found in our abilities. It's not found in our circumstances. That we're the same as everybody else in the, room, in the world based on those things. No, no, no. He says, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? It is with God's going with us that we are distinct. We say that around here a lot of times by saying it uh, something like this. What is there in your life? The only way you can explain it is God is doing it. That's what makes us distinct. That's God going with us. That's when we step out in faith and we talk to our neighbor and they're receptive to the gospel and you walk out of that situation and you go, my word, I never saw that coming. I thought they would kick me out the door because maybe they kicked you out the door some other times, but you've been faithful and you've been consistent and, and God is going with you. Or dealing with your troubled child. 
and you faithfully are praying and praying and praying and you see the breakthrough and what makes us distinct is that God is going with us. Here's a few verses you can tuck away. Psalm 23, verse 4, famous verse. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. For you are with me. The hardest things in life that the believer will ever go through. The promise of God is I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. For you are with me. Joshua 1, 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. What makes us distinct? The fact that God goes with us. He is our helper. He is our strength. He is our hope. Matthew 28, 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Revelation 21, 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. What makes us distinct? What makes you distinct, follower of Jesus Christ? It's that God is going with you. So what is there in your life? The only way you can explain it is God is doing it. That's what makes us distinct. And God is doing it. doesn't mean it'll be easy. You might go through the most hellish time of your life, but God will go with you through it. And you go, that's what makes me distinct because if it wasn't for the Lord in my life, in this situation, I'd have given up. I would have walked away. I would have despaired. I would have, who knows what I would have done. But God has gone with me. Joshua 1.5, this ties it back to Moses. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. That's the promise to Joshua by God. He says, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Our identity is found in the fact that God is going with us. Whatever comes this week, whatever comes this month, Whatever the journey you find yourself on, what makes you distinct from your next door neighbor, what makes you distinct from your coworker, is you don't go through it alone. God is going through it with you. That's identity. Here's the second thing. Talk about Moses' relationship. Moses' relationship. And Moses knew that what he was being called to do, if this plan was going to work, there was only one way forward. And the one way forward was, is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? There's a sense of a desperation in his voice here. God, you've got to go with me. But the Lord had said to him, Moses said in in, uh, verse 12 to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. And yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. And in verse 17, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Does God know you by name? Are you a son or a daughter of God? We'll come back to this when we, in another point in just a moment, but that relationship with God is so critical. And God more than once in these few verses just affirms for Moses that he is his child. I know you by name. Moses cried out to God. You see it all over these chapters as he was seeking God's help and God's direction. Moses was a man of prayer and God answered his prayer because Moses was a man who was in relationship. And when God calls you to do something that's beyond what you can do, which he certainly was doing with Moses and would do with you when you step out of your comfort zone and release to what God calls you to do, as you cry out to him, God's promises, I'm going with you. It's in the fact that I go with you that makes you different from anyone else in the room. I can't do this, Moses is saying. And God is saying, you're right. But I'm going to go with you, Moses. That's what makes you distinct. I'm going to go with the people of God. That's what makes them distinct. And I want you to really see really one nugget of this where I think Moses knocks the ball right out of the park. And that's found in verses 18 to 23, but primarily verse 18. Where does Moses turn? Where does he turn? 
And Moses said, please, God, please, show me your glory. God, show me your glory. Now, that's what I need. That's what I need to see. That's how I know that we are distinct. When God, when you will show us your glory. Why is this so important? Why is a focus on the glory of God? The statement of our church says, to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission and the spirit of the Great Commandment. Why is this glory thing of God uh, so important for us? Here's a number of things real quick. Here's the first one. Glory gives perspective. When you get a focus on God and who he is and what he's done, it gives you a perspective, a perspective of who you are and who God is. And when you get a perspective of who you are in light of who God is, it brings you to true humility. The classic chapter in Scripture, I think, that teaches this is in Isaiah chapter 6, 1 to 5. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. With two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah has a picture of God in his glory. When you get a picture of who God is in light of who you are, it brings you to true humility. The next verse says, and I said, woe is me. God, you are awesome. And I'm a mess. God, you promised to go with me. I can't do it on my own. Woe is me me for I am lost for I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the Lord of hosts when you catch a glimpse of the glory of God you get perspective when you see the glory of God it gives you confidence when you uh, review in your life all that God has done and it gives you confidence to go and talk to your neighbor it gives you hope for your son or your daughter who's struggling. It gives you a passion and a strength to move forward with the medical result you just got or the need that you have in your life. It gives us confidence. Glory sees God's manifest presence. In chapter 34 and verse 5, it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with them and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The glory of God helps us to see what God has done. And God proclaims himself, that verse says. The people of God, the people of God, they'd seen God's manifest presence. They'd seen his power in the last three months in a lot of different ways. They'd seen it in the plagues. They'd seen it in the Passover. They'd seen it in crossing the Red Sea. They'd seen it in the manna. They'd seen it in the pillar and the cloud that would lead and direct them. They, they had seen God's manifest presence all over the place, but... They weren't rehearsing it. They weren't remembering it. They lost sight of it. They lost sight of the glory of God. And unless we rehearse God's goodness, we will forget so easily. So we can study the word and we can see God's faithfulness to his people and we can rejoice in that. And we go, look what the Lord has done. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we have so much more. We can look at what Jesus Christ has done for us we can see the glory of God in our own life, the glory of God in your salvation. But unless you rehearse it, and by that I mean to remember it, to give thanks for it, you will forget. And the glory of God is demonstrated in his manifest presence. The glory of God reveals his character and his attributes. Verses uh, 6 and 7 of chapter 34. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. 
but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth a generation. And we see a God's character and his justice and all the things, the favorable things he says in those verses as well. God's glory reveals his character and his attributes. And when Moses saw that in verse 8 of chapter 34, he says, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and he worshiped. And he worshiped. But when you see the glory of God, God, show me your glory. When Isaiah saw the glory of God, he falls on his face, woe is me. And when you see the glory of God, you are, you're drawn to worship and to worship him. You will never truly worship until you understand, best we can, the glory of God. You don't worship until you get a focus on what God has done and what he's accomplished. And then it brings us to our knees before an almighty God who loves us so much and cares for us and delivers us and all of those things about him. The people saw and had false worship and failed the golden calf didn't work out so well for them because they took their eyes off the God who loved them and cared for them and delivered them. And glory, understanding, focusing on God for who he is and what he's done draws us to worship. Here's another one. Glory confirms God's companionship with us. We see God in his glory over and over and over again. We see in scripture, I will go with you. I will go with you. I will go with you. In uh, verse 9, it says, and he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please, there's that word again, let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it's a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take for us, take us for your inheritance. And when we see the glory of God, God confirms his companionship with us and he's not leaving us and he's not forsaking us. And even when we fail and even when we falter, God is not walking away from his children. We see it in his glory. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we get an extra piece to this pie. And we get the piece of the glory of Jesus Christ. That's something that uh, Moses was looking forward to, what God was going to do, but... He didn't have this piece. You and I have this piece. It's the glory that's found in knowing Jesus Christ. John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his... What's the word? Thank you. So I'm going to run that through again. You help me. And the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his... Right, his glory. Glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What a great thing we have. What an awesome thing we have. The glory of the work of Jesus Christ, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself nothing and took on the form of a servant. And he came and he died. And he was buried. And he rose again to demonstrate the glory of God. And he offers to us eternal life, a free gift that we don't earn and we don't deserve. And God offers it to us and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And God is showing you his glory. Follower of Jesus Christ today, we need to live every day out of the results of the gospel, out of what God has done, the glory which God demonstrated for us. And if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus Christ, he came and died on a cross that he didn't deserve to die on. He was buried and he rose again to pay for sin that he didn't commit so that he could be the right and righteous payment, the satisfaction of God's wrath so you could have eternal life and you can't earn it, and you don't deserve it. It's a gift from God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, not believes in him and tries harder, not believes in him and works for it, whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. When you see the glory of God in Christ, 
The gospel makes sense. The gospel makes sense. For so many people in the room, you've come to the place of trusting Christ. Why? Because the glory of God in Christ finally makes sense to you. And if you're here and you've never trusted Christ, the glory that was revealed in Jesus Christ is revealed so that we can have life and we can have it abundantly. Well, so what? So what? God, show me your glory. Because it's in your going with us that we are distinct. And Moses, this timid, but then willing leader, is used by God to lead a nation. And we in our timidity and wondering about the people around us and wondering about the circumstances, God is calling us to the same kinds of things. And will we go? Will we go not based on our strength, but based on the glory that we've seen in the working of God? So what's God putting it on your heart to do today? What is that thing you know you're supposed to do and you're not doing it? And don't do it out of just some sense of obedience. Do it out of a sense of the glory of God and what he's accomplished for you. We must know that if our service for the Lord is going to work, there's only one way forward. It's in his understanding of our distinctiveness because of who God is and what he has done. It's focused in his glory. If our church is going to be successful, there's only one way forward. If our leadership here is going to be successful, there's only one way forward. If the victory and our deepest trial in our life are going to be successful, there's one way forward. But he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? God, please, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory, God, and go before us in our church, go before us in our walk, go before us in our difficulty. Show us your glory. Because it's you with us that makes us distinct. What's God calling you to do? How do you need to respond for the fame of our Savior, Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word today. Thank you for the life of Moses. Father, um, so much challenge before him and concern and timidity, and yet, Lord, you brought him to a place of courage and even boldness and strength that came from you because it's in your going with us that we are distinct. And Lord, the thing you've called me to today, the thing that you've called the people in our church to today, would you give us a willingness to respond and say, Lord, I'll go, I'll do it. I don't know how you're going to do it, God, but I've seen your glory. I've seen your faithfulness. I've seen the working of Jesus Christ for me, so I will move forward. Do this work in us, God. Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, we pray these things in his name. Amen.